Amen. So God has seen fit to, uh, to graciously give us four gospel stories. Four different retellings of the life and person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll often heard them referred to as the synoptic gospel. Synoptic meaning viewing together. See, John wrote his gospel about 30 years later. And so there was, well, the purpose was the same, to, to, to show Jesus and his beauty and his glory and to call people to faith in him. It was to a slightly different audience. It was a slightly different style. But what you'll find there with the synoptics, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were telling these same stories. And yet, with each of their telling, they're viewing it from a slightly different angle. A little bit like going into an art gallery. And you look at it a little bit from here. And it's beautiful. And you come and you stand over here a little bit. And it's beautiful. And then you come here and you see it again. And now you're seeing the whole picture. You're really able to appreciate what you're looking at. And that's what God is doing there with, with the synoptic gospels. He's, he's giving us the opportunity to really get a different angle, a different view of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. What his gospel meant. So we thank him that he's done this. And what you'll find is that with each of these, with each of these synoptic gospels, there, there are times when they'll tell the story in slightly different order based on the audience they're telling it to, based on the purpose, that they're not always in chronological order. They're not always in lockstep. And yet, in these last three weeks, these last three passages of Scripture that we studied together, you'll find that they are perfectly matched up, one right after another, beginning with Jesus healing the paralytic man. Then moving on to Jesus calling Levi to follow him and having supper there with him and his buddies in his home. And then this week, as Jesus is questioned about, questioned about fasting, See, apparently these three stories are so fundamental. These three pictures are so fundamental to understanding Jesus, understanding his ministry, understanding his gospel, that the Holy Spirit made certain that three, these three men that were used of God to record these gospels, that they kept them in this order. That with Jesus healing the paralytic man, he was declaring to the world, forgiveness of sin comes in me. Then in calling Levi and going and eating with the sinners in his house, he was saying, let me introduce you to the kinds of people that I offer forgiveness to. And then this week, as he's questioned about fasting, and he answers those questions, he's saying this gospel message, the reality that forgiveness is only found in me, the reality that this forgiveness is extended to sinners like Levi, like you, and like me, that this gospel message is completely and totally incompatible with any other means of justification. You do not add anything to Jesus Christ and therein find salvation. Salvation is found in him and only in him. And so I have no doubt that for most of you, you're already aware of that. Most of you that are, that are joining us this morning, certainly those here in the room and those that are, that are joining online, you're already aware of this. You know that, that the gospel message which saves is Jesus Christ plus nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. That you come to Jesus Christ and you bring Nothing. You bring nothing with you. You just, you come to the cross of Jesus Christ with nothing in your hand, seeking to add nothing to his, nothing to his salvation, nothing to the justification that's found in him. You know that here, but it's hard to rest in it here because those old habits are so hard to break. Those old sins are so hard to let loose of. So they're always clamoring on you. They're always calling us back. And so it's with that in mind that I invite you to stand to your feet as we continue reading from Mark's gospel. We're in Mark's gospel Chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And I pray that as we, as we dive into this text this morning, that God would, God would give you this grace, gracious reminder that Jesus Christ is enough, but that he would also mercifully warn you that you ought not ever try to add anything to him. So we begin in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And all God's people said, Amen. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? And would you make this book live to me? Through your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Verse 18 went like this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now we know that John had disciples. He's talking about the Baptist here. John the Baptist. We read at the beginning of Mark's gospel, almost right out of the gate, that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, they were going out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John and to confess their sins there. And that he had followers, he had disciples, just as Jesus did. That they were, following after, they were following after John, they were listening to his teaching, they were confessing their sins, they were repenting. But we also know that John was just the forerunner. He was the one preparing the way. Prepare your hearts, repent, be clean, the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, what you will recognize is that I am not fit to untie his sandals. I'm just the guy paving the way for the real guy. And so... When Jesus shows up and he declares to the people, behold, the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world, the people should have recognized there is the one that we've been waiting for. There is the Messiah. They should have broken free at that point. Why, would, why on earth would you keep following after John at this point? And in addition to that, why on earth would the people that had been following after John, that had been preparing their hearts for the Messiah to come, that had been called to repentance, why would they allow themselves to be associated with the Pharisees like this? The Christ has come, and now you've... You're continuing to follow after John, and you're calling yourself one that's, that's following along with the Pharisees. They're not the same group, unless you're, yet you're allowing yourself to be associated with them. Well, apparently, for some of these people, they had heard the message of repentance. They had heard the call to be clean. They had found religion. They'd come out, they had met with this wild man in the wilderness, and they found religion, and they liked it. They began to find their identity there. They began to love themselves. So much so that they just stopped right there. They came to the signpost that was pointing to the thing, and they took it as everything. They camped out right there so that when the Messiah comes, so when, when Jesus Christ reveals himself and he declares the gospel, the kingdom is at hand, repent, believe in this gospel, and be saved, they said, could you move to the side? We're looking for the Messiah. Could you get out of the way? We're doing religion here. And they completely missed him. They had stopped. They had fallen short. They had come to religion They'd come to something that looked like repentance, but they didn't come all the way to Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to know that there's many in Israel that continue to live there today. If you'll go to Israel and you'll get on a bus or get in a taxi and you'll begin driving through some of these towns, you'll find these posters or these billboards with these, with these Jewish guys and there'll be some Hebrew writing on there and it looks almost like a political ad or maybe a rock band of some kind and it's just this, this advertisement up on this, up on this billboard. And I asked our guide when we were there, I said, what is this? What are these people? And they said, those are their messiahs. That depending on what town you went to, there was a different messiah in these towns. Sometimes multiple messiahs within one town. And I asked the guy, I said, well, then what, what happens when this dude dies and proves himself not to be the Christ? He said, well, they just follow the next one. There's always somebody waiting in line trying to prove himself to be the messiah. It's heartbreaking. In the middle of all this religion, they've completely looked right past Jesus Christ and they continue to wait for something else. Don't you see they're not alone? We do the very same thing. How many of us have, have stumbled into the church? We've heard some kind of message. It's a different message. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to faith. It's a call to something different. We know that our life is a mess. And so we show up and we get caught up in that. We get caught up in this life of religion. And for many of us, because of this life of religion, we, we get just enough of the gospel. We hear just enough about Jesus. We see just enough of the power, the working of the Holy Spirit that we become inoculated. We're immune to the gospel. We've heard it so much that it just becomes like Charlie Brown's teacher. And therefore, we can't ever hear it with fresh ears again. It's like being vaccinated to the gospel. The message is no longer new to us. It no longer says anything to us. I believe that's what the author of Hebrews was talking about. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, he says this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, 
since they are crucifying once and again the Son of God in their own harm and holding him up to contempt. He's not talking about somebody here that's been saved and then wandered away. That can't happen. Jesus Christ has promised us that any that his Father has given him, he will not lose them. He will hold them fast until the end. What he's talking about here is somebody that comes into the orbit. Somebody that comes under the sphere of influence of the church. They see what the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does. They hear the gospel message. And they hear it so much so that it's no longer new to them. They're immune to the gospel. So covered in religion that they cannot see Jesus Christ. For other people, it isn't religion as we understand religion. It's the religion of independence. It's the religion of pride. It's the religion of self-help. It's the religion of psychology. It's the religion of trauma therapy. It's the religion of whatever else they've decided takes the place of Jesus Christ. Whatever else they've decided they want to add to Jesus Christ. And now they're immune to the gospel and they can't see Jesus. Jesus, would you kind of get out of the way? I'm looking for salvation to come. They weren't alone. We continue to fight this. And as a result, what we find is that Jesus is nothing more than an obstacle, an annoyance, a stumbling block to these people. Jesus, you make a better door than a window. Would you get out of the way, please? So this is what happened to John's disciples. They completely missed, missed the Messiah. And, and John was in prison. And because John was in prison, he wasn't there to tell them, guys, you've missed it. I'm not the one. I was preparing you for the one. The one is here. Stop calling yourself my disciples. I've led you as far as I'm going to lead you. I have led you to Jesus Christ. Salvation is here and salvation is found in him. Follow after him. And instead they were just stuck. And in this newfound zeal for holiness, in this newfound zeal for religion, what they would have done was just found the most religious dudes around, right? Hey, we like this life of holiness. These dudes seem to be all about the holy life over here, these Pharisees. Maybe we can hang out with them a little bit. Maybe they can show us more about this religion. Maybe they can show us more about this holy life. And so they followed after them. And people came to him. This is to Jesus. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Here we go again with the questions. There may have been some sincerity to that. Like, why aren't you fasting? I don't understand. I genuinely don't understand. But there was also this game of gotcha that they were trying to play. And so they said, you know what, Jesus? All the holy people fast. All the religious people are fasting. Why aren't your people fasting? Why aren't your people doing the things that the other religious people do? Now, we need to remember that Actually, we don't need to remember, because some of you may not know this. Did you know that in the Old Testament, God only calls his people to one fast? See, God's relationship to his people all throughout the Old Testament, it was all about feasting and celebration, recognizing the things that he had done, commemorating the things that he had done, looking forward to the things that he would have done. There was only one time in all the, all the Old Testament when God calls his people to fast. That's on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Tishri, that's late September, early October, that time when the high priest would purify himself. He would go into the Holy of Holies, taking the, the blood of a lamb, and he would sprinkle it there, on the, 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 the animal, take the blood and sprinkle it there on the mercy seat, trying to make atonement, asking God to forgive, to look past the sins of the people. The most somber of days. It was on that day that God has called his people to fast. And isn't it appropriate? Like, who has an appetite in the middle of that? Coming to the point of recognizing that your sins are so filthy that they demand the death of an innocent substitute? Nobody wants to eat on a day like that. It would have certainly been natural for people to withhold food from themselves. God commanded it, and the people would have gladly followed along with this. It was a somber event. It was a mournful thing. Certainly there was a celebratory facet to it. The understanding that God had forgiven sins, that God had looked past sins, that God had passed over them. But ultimately, there was to be a heavy heart that came with the recognition that this is where our sin has left us. Someone else had to die in my place. Now, this wasn't the only time that you would find people fasting in the Old Testament. You'll remember during our time in Nehemiah, as our hero was there, and he hears word in Susa, in the citadel, and he hears word about the condition of Jerusalem. What did he do? He wept, and he prayed, and he mourned, and he fasted. You remember King David? When his child was born to Bathsheba, and the child would eventually die, but the child was sick, and David was pleading with God. He was sorrowful about the sickness and perhaps the impending death of his child. He had a heavy heart, and so he sat and he fasted. Or think about even the wicked people of Nineveh. As Jonah came and declared to them the word of God that destruction was coming upon them, 
What did the king tell them? He said, you're to sit in ashes. You're to sit in sackcloth. You're to turn away. You're to plead with God. As a matter of fact, he made a decree that no, no person, not even an animal, was to taste food. They couldn't even drink water. He declared a fast. So that while God only, the, only commanded his people to fast once per year, anytime they found themselves in a spot of trouble, anytime they found themselves in a heavy situation, anytime they found themselves in opposition to God, they mourned and they fasted. And this was right. What they did was they said with their hearts through fasting, with their bodies through fasting, what they said through their hearts in prayer. He said, God, we desire you. We love you. We long for you more than we long for any of your stuff. And Jesus certainly would have fasted as well. We know that he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness during his time of temptation. We can only imagine as one that has fulfilled all righteousness that he also would have fasted on the day of atonement. And we don't know that his disciples never fasted, but that's the accusation against them. They're saying, why don't you fast? But you see, what they had done is they had taken fasting, and just like everything else, they had made it into a ritual. They weren't just talking about fasting on the Day of Atonement. They weren't just talking about fasting during those times of trouble, during those times of mourning, and during those times of sorrow. Do you remember the story of the Pharisee, the story that Jesus told? We talked about it last week. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're there in the temple. And the Pharisee, you remember what he said to God, Luke 18, 11 through 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. He says, I fast twice a week, two times per week. These Pharisees, they had made it a habit. They thought, you know what? If fasting once a year is good, surely fasting twice a week is even better. Look how holy I am. And historians, they tell us that those days were Mondays and Thursdays, that on Mondays and Thursdays, you would find that the Pharisees didn't eat anything from sunup to sundown, like clockwork. They're fasting. They believed that they were being holy and they were being righteous before God. And boy, did they like to make a show of it. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they were fasting. See, there were three things that the Pharisees really found their identity in. These three acts which really identified a Pharisee and kind of separated them from all the other sorry people that didn't really know God the way they knew God. They didn't really honor God the way that they honored God. One of those was fasting. One of those was the giving of alms. That's giving to, the, to, to those in need. And then it was their prayer. And we see all of those kind of pointed out in this text that we just read. But they weren't they were just going to make sure that they did these things before God. They were going to make absolute certain that you knew about it too. Now, I don't remember where I picked up this habit. And I, don't, I haven't done it in a while. But I used to always, whenever I did something awesome or sorry, I'd go, look at me. You know, so like I'd, I'd run and I'd like jump off the dive board and then in the air I'd go, look at me. And I'd want everybody to look at me, right? I'm not talking about when I was five. I'm talking about when I was like 25. Or I'd do something embarrassing, right? Like I'd try to embarrass Amanda, you know? I'd like push her into the bushes and yell, look at me! So everybody look over there and see her in the thing. These are the, this is the tribe of look at me. This is the party of look at me. Everything they did, look at me. So much so that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was warning his followers, don't be like those guys. Matthew 6, 1 through 2, he says this, beware, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. When you're in Israel, one of the things that you'll find, particularly in the old city, you'll hear this thumping, thump, thump, thump. You look around, you're like, what is happening? What you find is it's a, some religious bigwig coming down the street. And he's paid these dudes to walk in front of him. And they got these big, heavy canes. And they're slamming the ground. You need to make way, you sorry people. It, it is wicked. It is evil. But not only that, whenever they would give money to those in need, they would sound the trumpets. Look at me! Say, don't do that. And don't scoff at those people. We just replace trumpets with cell phones, right? Every time we go out and do something for somebody in need, we got our cell phone over here, our buddy over here filming it. Look at me. And then you post about it, right? Gave a hobo 20 bucks today. He said, thank you. No, I should thank him. More blessed to give than to receive. Hashtag all glory to God. We do. That's our trumpets, right? He goes on. Verse 5. This is Matthew. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, 
You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He's saying, look, this isn't a time to draw attention to yourself. He's not saying there's anything wrong with prayer. Jesus prayed. His people prayed. They prayed together. I lead you in prayer. Frankly, I worry about this sometimes though, right? Because we get up here and pray, and I'm the dude doing the talking, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to talk to God in a way that's clear and concise and that makes sense and whatever, and I struggle at this moment sometimes. What, what am I doing, right? Am I like the, the, the Pharisee? Listen to me. Listen to all the pretty words. Look, I went to seminary. I know big words. Listen to my big words. Listen to my, man, God must really love me because I know all the secret church words, and y'all don't know them. I, I struggle at this point sometimes wondering, but I don't, he's not condemning us from praying. He's saying, don't make it about you. Don't make this big public show. Don't condemn other people that you're not like them in the middle of your prayer. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. You can picture this, can't you? They walk around just like a bunch of sad sacks, just looking so sad like Eeyore, just hoping somebody's going to come up to him and go, man, why do you look so sad? I'm fasting. Oh, he's fasting. Yes, he's quite religious. He's fasting. Look, let me, let me, let me look as down and as sorry and as sad as I can. To make sure that you know that I'm like one of these other guys twice a week. Monday and Thursday, I'm fasting. He's saying, don't do that. Jesus wasn't telling him don't fast. He wasn't telling him don't pray. He wasn't telling him don't give the needy. He's saying, don't make it all about you. Don't make a show of it. And don't think that you're going to do those things. You may be able to fool your buddies. You may be able to fool the strangers on the street, but you'll receive no reward from your father. He's not glorified by that. He's not honored by that. He's not pleased by that. Whatever reward you get from the people, that's all you're going to get. So I hope it's enough. I hope you enjoy it because you're going to find no reward from your father. He's not impressed. And so these guys, they look and they see something different about Jesus. And I need you to understand this. We, we can get it twisted sometimes into thinking that Jesus was just kind of one religious dude a bunch, among, amongst a bunch of other real religious dudes. And then he just kind of blended in. He didn't. Even the people, he, he didn't have to go up to the Pharisees and say, hey, I'm not like you. They looked and went, he's not like us. That's why they sought his death. They recognized that he was different, that his message was different, that his actions were different, that his life was different. He didn't have to declare, I'm here and I'm new. They knew it, and they didn't like it. But they look to him and they see how very different he is. I take that as a challenge in my own life, that if I'm truly following after Jesus Christ, I can't just blend in. If I'm truly found in Christ, living a life that looks like his, other people, even other religious people, are going to look and go, you're weird. You make us uncomfortable. You make us question why we're doing the religious things that we're doing. That's where the, the people found him. And so they ask him again, why don't, why don't your disciples fast? What they were really asking was, why don't you fast the way that we fast, right? Why don't you do religion the way that we do religion? And you got to remember that this happened right after Jesus calling Matthew, Levi, to follow him and then going to this, to this party, to this shindig with the, the tax collectors and the other sinners. And so this would have been a double event. And I like to imagine that the party happened on a Monday or a Thursday, the day when they, weren't, they were mad because they weren't able to eat. Remember, they're peeking in the windows and they're there and they see him there and they're going, who, who are you? You're eating and you're drinking while the religious people are fasting. It would have surely been because of moments like this that they called Jesus a, a glutton and a drunkard. Not because he was ever drunk. Not because he was ever a glutton. You're not doing religion the way we do religion, Jesus, and that's a no-no. So they ask him, why aren't you fasting? Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, this is, this is, a, this is kind of a classic, um, this is kind of the way the rabbis argued, right? You'd answer a question with a question. So they ask him a question, and he answers them. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It was rhetorical. I don't want your answer. I'm going to answer my own question. So he asked them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No. That's the answer. No. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So weddings in Jesus' day were a big deal. It would have been like a seven-day party, right, of, 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 of eating and drinking and dancing. This thing would have, would have lingered on for a long time, for seven days. These parties would have happened, and no one shows up to a party like this and fasts. You show up to this party with an empty stomach because you're about to leave full as a tick. You don't show up fasting. You don't show up because fasting was for a time of mourning. It was for a time of sorrow. It was for a time of discontentment. It would have been completely inappropriate for you to show up 
It's somebody else's wedding. It's worse than showing up wearing white, right? The ladies, no, you don't do that. You don't show up wearing white at somebody else's wedding. So it's not some big white dress. This would have been worse than this, so much so that it was outlawed. They had made rules against showing up at somebody else's, at somebody else's wedding and fasting. It was just a no-no. You didn't do it. And Jesus is telling them, the bridegroom is here during that time. We're, t- we're going to be feasting. We're not going to be fasting. And this is interesting. We, we don't just skim past this either. You see, we look backwards through the cross today, and we know Jesus is the bridegroom. For those of you, that's, a, that's kind of a church. We don't use the word bridegroom anymore, I don't guess, right? Bridegroom is just the groom, right? It's, it's, it's the man in the wedding. It's the husband. That's, that's what the Bible means. That's what people in that time meant when they said the bridegroom. Talking about the husband, the groom. So he's saying, we, we look backwards, and we always know of this relationship, that Jesus is the husband, Jesus is the groom, and that the church is the bride. Look, looking backwards from our space in history, we're able to look backwards through the cross, and we know him as this. And we know that just as a father would have gone out and secured for his son a bride in those times, that God had purchased this bride, that the purchase price was the life of his son, the blood of his son, that by that blood the bride was made pure and was made holy and made clean, prepared for him. We, we, we know that, but for the first century Jew, this would not have been the way they viewed this. Because if you look backwards, there's messianic promises, promises and, and prophecies about who the Messiah would be all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus was constantly living these out before them. All these prophecies coming true in his life to prove that he was the Messiah. But what you will not find in the Old Testament is the call that the Messiah would be the groom. What you find, go back and look. What you find all throughout the Old Testament is that the bridegroom, the husband, is God. And that the bride is his people. That's why God is consistently talking to them about being an adulterous nation. They're a bunch of cheaters. Or you think about the book of Hosea. The whole story of the prophet of Hosea was about the, the, the adulterous nature. The cheaters that were Israel. And God is the faithful bridegroom. The faithful husband that pursues after them, that wins them back, that sings songs over them and, 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 and loves them despite their unfaithfulness. So what Jesus was showing these people here is more than I am the Messiah of God, he's saying I am God. This is more than a, more than a statement about his messianic nature. This is a statement about his deity, his divine nature. He's saying I am God. Just as you people knew God as your husband, you're to see me in that way. The bridegroom is here. Physically, the bridegroom is here. And during this time, it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. He's saying if you had any idea who I am, you wouldn't be thinking of fasting. You'd be celebrating, not mourning. If you understood that forgiveness has come, that salvation is here, that God has shown up and I am, the thought of not eating would never cross your mind. You'd be partying like you had never partied before. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Saying the celebration won't last forever. So there is going to come a time when the bridegroom is going to be taken away. This is a violent word. It's like being snatched away. It's like being forced away, being taken away, pointing forward surely to his death at some, some level in this. This is, again, weird. Well, how do weddings work, right? The guests leave so that the bride and the groom can be together, so they can enjoy their life together. They can love each other alone, away from these other people. He's saying, no, 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 the bridegroom is going to be taken away. You're going to be left, and it's going to be then, on that day, that my people will fast. It would be backwards for you to fast today. This is a time of celebration. God is here. Salvation is here. The bridegroom is here. Today, we party. It would be wrong of you to fast today. But then, on that day, when I am taken away, then there will be sorrow. Then there will be longing. Then there will be loss. Then there will be sorrow. Then would be the proper time to express your discontentment by fasting. You've got it all backwards. But when that day comes, it will be then. And I'm not going to have to tell my people to fast. You'll notice that what he says is not, I command my people on that day to fast. He says they will do it. The thought of eating won't even cross their mind. You know, when a mother's child is sick, when a child is lost, there's something heavy going on in the life of a mom or a dad, you don't have to tell them, hey, you probably shouldn't eat. The thought of food makes them want to just yak. I can't get anything in my belly at this moment. He's saying, that's what it's going to be like on that day. I don't have to command my people not to eat. You know, in, 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 in biblical times, we talked about this with, with the death of, death of Lazarus. There would have been paid professional mourners. You would have paid people to show up and show 
how loved this man was by crying and by, 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 by weeping and wailing and mourning. When Jesus has snatched away those that are truly his, they will mourn. They will feel a sense of loss. They will fast. They will not eat on that day. Now, is he talking just about, there's some people that say that what he's talking about here is just that time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And certainly they wouldn't have eaten in that time. And you see some, you see some hints of this as Jesus meets the men on the road to Emmaus and he takes them and he breaks bread with them there. Or, or, or when he asks for some fish, it seems almost like he was breaking the fast that these people would have undergone. They wouldn't have thought of eating, eating, eating during that time. But I think he's talking about more than that. While certainly God is not, he's not left us alone, right? Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. And surely he is with us, even in the storms, even in the virus, even in the fire. We know that he's with us, but there's still within us this, it's not, it's not all. It's not everything. It's not fulfilled, that there's still this longing. We want to experience him away from the temptation of sin. We want to experience him away from the pull of Satan and the harassment that he brings against us. We want, to ex- we want to experience him in a fuller way, a deeper way, a more eternal way. And so there is that longing within us. And so it's right for us today in some capacities to fast. But don't miss what he's challenging them with here. He's saying, listen, your ritual must match your reality. See, he could have asked them. When they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why don't your men fast? What he could have done is he could have turned around and said, why do you fast? What are you longing for? What are you sorrowful about? What are you mourning over? What are you discontent with? And what he would have been met with was blank stares. And what does that have to do with anything? We fast because we're religious. And religious people fast. They were just doing stuff to do stuff. It didn't match their heart. It didn't match their life. It didn't match their reality. And so... What Jesus is saying here is there's got to be some connection between those two things. Your rituals, the stuff that you're doing over here, it's got to match your heart or it's meaningless. It's just a game. It's just a farce. It's just a facade. You're just religious people doing religious things. You've got to get to a place where what's within your heart is what's overflowing in all aspects, in your worship, in your fasting, in your feasting, in all of it. When you're praying, when you're giving, when you're fasting, when you're feasting, when you're worshiping, when you're serving, those things ought to come from an overflow of the heart. And we've got to be very careful about doing these things just because it's what everybody else has always done. Or because we look over there and that's what the holy people seem to be doing. Saying there's, there's got to be some connection there. Because when there's not, not only is it not honoring to God, not only is there no reward in it for us, but as a matter of fact, God turns his head from it. He despises it. Look at the words of Isaiah. I turn to Isaiah 58. There, there, there's kind of two components here. It, it's... it's the people are speaking and then God responding. So Isaiah 58 verse 3 says this. This is the people. Why have we fasted and you have not seen us? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So God replies, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all the workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. He said, I'm not listening to you in this fast. I'm not seeing you in this fast because you're not doing this because you long for me. You're not doing this because you have a broken heart like Nehemiah. You're not doing this because you're repentant like the Ninevites. You're not doing this because you recognize your own sin. You're not, you're not doing this because you long to be with me in a greater sense, to experience my pre- presence in a greater way. You're fasting because you love you. Get that out of my face. It doesn't honor me, it doesn't please me, and you will find no reward here. Come back when your heart's right. You see, when your heart's right with God, when you're walking with God, when you're in in an active, ongoing, real relationship with God, you don't need any outsiders to tell you what you ought to be doing. Your heart cries out in moments of joy, and you just want to worship. You may not know what worship looks like, but your heart cries out in worship. And when you're sorrowful and when you're broken and when you're mourning, the thought of food just makes you want to puke. He's saying when your heart is aligned with me, you don't need to look and do a bunch of play acting like the rest of these people, like these hypocrites. You need to be seeking me, and then you need to worry about the rituals later. I'll show you all that stuff, but you need to be seeking me in this way. And so Jesus is, by, 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 refusing, to, by refusing to play along with their games, he's telling them No. The salvation is not found in these activities. It's a way to be right with God is not found in these activities. And I'm not going to give any 
legitimacy to this hyper-religious thing that you've called yourself to by playing along. So no, I'm not going to participate in that. I am here and I am doing something new. This new thing that I'm doing is not about a bunch of rituals. It's about a reality of life lived with God. That in me, you will find God. In me, you will find forgiveness. In me, you will find the presence of God. And in me, you will find a life lived in such lockstep with what God is doing that you're not going to have to look around and see what everybody else is doing. You're going to hear from my Father. You're going to feel the work of His Spirit. And you're going to be driven to do the things that are right, that are pleasing to Him. Therein, you will find your heavenly rewards. But He he knows the hearts of men. He, he, he knows that even for those that would hear this message, even for those that would see him as something different and glorious and to be cherished, and even for those that long for the salvation that's found only in him, he knows how hard these old habits would die. Listen, when you have made your identity, I, I cannot stress that enough. God has just been beating me up over the last couple of weeks on this. That making my identity as a pastor, making my identity as a church member, making my identity as a servant in this way or that way, Rather than making my identity as one found in Christ, I know how hard that dies. And Jesus knew how hard that died, and so he tries to help him understand. So he talks, as he often does, he talks in, he, he talks about things that would have been common to their day. He makes, makes these analogies to try to show them the spiritual reality using physical things that they would have been, they'd have been familiar with. And so verse 21 No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins. So these two analogies that both point to the same spiritual truth. He's saying that when your clothes wear out, as they do, Back then, you didn't just have a closet full of clothes. You didn't just run down to CUIC and give it away and buy some new clothes. Like, you patched up your clothes, like, almost like the 80s. Do you remember, those of you that had sisters, or those of you that are sisters, when, when your sister's pants would get too short, and your mom would take frilly, like, ruffles and, and sew it, that was the worst. That was the worst. Everybody knew you were a little sad kid with a doily taped to the bottom of your pants. That was not cool, but that's what you did, right? You didn't just throw away your clothes, You didn't just give away your clothes. Well, back then, even more so, right? And so when something was worn out, you had to patch it. You needed to patch it to to continue to use it. And they didn't have all these synthetic fabrics, these pre-shrunken fabrics and things like that. It would have been cotton and wool and linen. And so what he's saying is, look, when you've worn your robe and you've worn a hole in your robe and you go to patch it, you don't put brand new new, uh, fabric over that, brand new material on top of that. Because what's going to happen is as soon as it gets wet, as soon as you wash it, what happens? It's going to shrink. And because the patch is new and it is stronger than the old, it's going to rip away. When it shrinks, it's going to take the old with it, and it's going to destroy it all. You're going to have a bigger hole than you had when you first tried to patch it up. And then he moves on to wine, and I want to be careful here. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to talk too much about ancient winemaking. We're in, in the middle of a quarantine, and I can just imagine a bunch of FBC kids making bathtub wine and saying, Pastor Josh told them how to do it, so I'm not telling you to practice this, but... He's, he's talking about wine, and part of the way that they would have stored wine back then was in animal skins. You would taken something like a goat, you would have cut off its, its, its feet, sewed that up, you would have cleaned the hide, you would have taken off the hide, you would have cut off the, the feet, you would have sewed that together, and then you had the neck, makes a nice little spout where you can pour the wine out of, and so you would have cleaned the hide, you would have sewed it up, sewed it up through the belly, and now you've got this giant patch, uh, pouch, excuse me, that you, can use to, that you can use to store your wine, and so... Then the ladies would go and they would stomp the grapes. When we were in Israel, we saw these, just these ancient troughs, these like stone troughs. They're kind of like sh- shallow baby pools. And above them, there's ropes. They've hung these ropes because I guess grapes probably get slippery, right? And so you would have hold, held onto these ropes and you would, have, you would have stomped the wine and then the juice would have flowed. And then depending on what kind of wine you were making, you would have taken the juice and maybe some of the pulp, maybe not some of the pulp, and you would have, you would have put it in these wineskins. And then the, the sugar that is released in the juice, the sugar that's released in the fruit, that mixes with yeast, either yeast that was just kind of free-floating. Remember, yeast is, is something that just infiltrates everything, right? God often talks about yeast, not just as a bad thing, but as a thing which infiltrates, and it's just everywhere. So either yeast that was on the skin of the grapes or perhaps yeast that was in the air would have mixed with that sugar, and fermentation begins to happen. And that sugar is then converted into alcohol and carbon dioxide, the gas. So what Jesus is talking about here is if you take this wine and you put it in these goat skins, when that gas is released, 
the skin needs to be able to stretch. And if what you've got is a new skin, something that is supple, something that has the ability to give like a balloon, you got no problems. But if you take some old crusty skins, some skins that have been used, that no longer have any stretch to them, and you put that wine in there, it's going to expand, it's going to burst, and you're going to lose everything. Your skin is no longer any good, your wine is on the floor, it's no longer any good. What he's saying both about the wine skin and about the patch is that mixing new with old can lead to great disaster and you can, you can lose both. You can't mix the old with the new and expect them to both hold on. And this was going to be an incredible problem for the people that he was talking to, it's for, specifically for the Pharisees, but really for all of Israel because they had lived for more than a millennia under the law. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the law was bad, just like he wasn't saying that old goat skins were bad. They had a purpose. They had been used for a purpose. This old robe, it had a purpose. It had been used for a purpose. That the law was a gracious gift from God, that God had revealed his nature in his law, he had showed people who he was, how to honor him. He had called them through the law. He had called them to their need for a savior. He had shown them their own sinful nature. That the law was a gracious gift from God. And in addition to that, even after the atonement, Jesus loved the law. He worked with, with great zeal to make certain that he, he accomplished every last portion of the law. And then even after the atonement, even for us today, you remember that part of the new covenant that's found in Jesus' blood is that the law would be written on our heart that is an expression of our love for God, that no longer do we have to have some external law that tells us how to obey, that internally, it's a direction for our love. That whereas love is the engine, the law is the, is the rudder. It steers us. I love you, God. Let me show you what love to me looks like. Right? He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So there's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself. The problem, though, is that the law cannot save. The law was never intended to save. And yet these people took it and they tried to turn it into something else. They tried to earn salvation and justification to a thing that could never bring it to them. It's a little bit like showing up at a beautiful woman's house, mowing her lawn, and then assuming that makes you married. Doesn't work that way. Not only does it not lead to love and communion, it'll have the cops called on you. It's creepy. But that's what these dudes had tried to do. We're going to go do some things over here, and we think that's going to earn us a relationship with you, God. They had taken the law and they had twisted it into something that was perverse. They tried to use it for something that God had not intended. It was detestable to him. That's the old wine. I mean, the old wine skins. That's the old robe. That's the tattered robe. So that when Jesus looks around and he sees this thing, you've taken my father's law and you have turned it into something detestable. And because you couldn't be saved through that, you expect that I'm going to come along and I'm going to patch it up. Or you think that the salvation that's found in me, you can contain me in these old rules that you've made. And these man-made laws in this religion, I've not come to prop up your religion. I've not come to patch up the thing that won't save you. I've not come to just be a plug-in to this thing that you're already doing and just happy that you've chosen to include me. I am. Salvation is in me, and it is only in me. And to add anything to that is going to leave you completely broken and torn and spilled and ruined. The gospel that is found in Jesus Christ is completely and totally incompatible with any other means of justification. He didn't come as an as a add-on. We think about our own lives and the ways that we have tried to earn salvation, the ways that we have tried to become justified, the way that we have tried to become right by God in our own abilities, or the way that we've just rejected the old stuff, the way that we've, we've tried to find our identity in our independence and in our freedom and in our whatever it is, all of those things, they're completely incompatible with Jesus Christ. And the salvation that's found in him. And I beg you not to check out on me here. Because I, I know that it's easy to look back at the Pharisees and just kind of nod our head and go, yeah, those dudes were totally lost. But every single one of us, we come to Jesus Christ with just loads of baggage. There's none of us that don't come to Jesus with just baggage. Not just our sin, but our best efforts. We've all tried in our own way to figure it out. We've all tried our own way to find our identity as the church kid or the good kid or the missionary kid or the, the, or the preacher's kid or the preacher. We try to find our identity in these things, and he's saying, listen, you've got to let go of all of those for me to be of any value to you. I'm not a plug-in. I'm not a patch. I won't fit in your old wineskins. You're going to find that you gain nothing because of that. And we know that we've got these little voices of doubt that are just coming after us, and they're telling us, it can't be that easy. You know what all you've done. Surely it can't be all in Christ. Surely it's got to be you do all you can do, and then Jesus does the rest. Wrong. Wrong. You can't do squats. When it comes to earning your justification, 
When it comes to being found right with God, you contribute nothing. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus Christ plus whatever you manufacture equals spilled wine and holes in your robe. You can't add to it. This was a common issue for the, during the time of Paul, and he was writing to the church in Galatia, and one of the, one of the you know, Judaism was just holding on, right? And so one of the, really the, the striking points, the, the, the real rubbing points for them was the matter of circumcision. They just kept telling people, look, in order to truly be saved, in order to truly receive this salvation, these, people were, these weren't people that were denying Jesus, okay? These weren't, this was the church. This was, this was people that knew Jesus, that loved Jesus, that wanted to find salvation in Jesus, was calling people to faith in Jesus. But they thought, yeah, but you've got to add in a little bit of this over here. And, and the, the issue for them was circumcision. Today, that's not necessarily the thing. So add in whatever your thing is. And listen to what he warned them. Galatians 5, 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. He's saying not only will you not find peace, not only will your heart lie against you, not only will you never find assurance, as long as you continue to try to add to Christ, you will be severed from Christ. His grace will be of no use to you as long as you continue to try to add to him. And think about it at its root. What are you saying? What are you saying when you try to add to your salvation? What are you saying when you try to earn salvation as Jesus Christ stands over here and says, behold, it is free? You're saying, Jesus, you're not enough. I don't think you're enough. I don't think your life was worth enough so that when you laid it down, it could possibly pay for my sins. I don't think your promises are enough that when I place my faith in you, you will begin this process which ends in my glory. Jesus, I don't believe you're enough. And he stands there having laid down his life Proven his power over death, sin, hell, the grave, and Satan. And you look him in the face and go, yeah, but. Look at me. Say, no. You get to add anything to me and think that you can have me too. That's my challenge for you this morning. I realized yesterday as I was, as I was preparing this lesson, I realized that because I'm not looking at faces there's some pictures here people have come in and put some pictures of of church members but because i'm not looking at actual room full of people that perhaps i've lost some of my gospel urgency that perhaps because i'm not looking out at actual souls at actual people that i've lost some of the fire that is intended to burn within my belly to call you people to salvation and worship is not about the lost this is god's people coming together to honor him in his presence but we also have an incredible opportunity particularly right now with however many people are, are, are logging in tuning in and joining with us people that may not otherwise be exposed to this gospel i realize we've got an incredible opportunity and so may i say to you this morning jesus christ is enough the world has lied to you they have told you that you are enough you're not Absent from Jesus Christ, you are not. What you are is a sinner. What I am is a sinner. And in that sin, I have completely and totally alienated myself from God. I cannot know him, I cannot please him, and I certainly cannot go into heaven and live with him for all eternity. He is too holy for that. He is too just a judge for that. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin and still be God. But the God of the universe loves you so. This struck me right between the eyes today. As I was preparing, I was in my back study and I was praying. I, I felt that, that subtle reminder, that, that whisper. While you were still sinners. He, Jesus didn't come, lay down his life, and then force his father to love you because of what he had done. This wasn't, this wasn't a ransom where he came and he said, God, I know you hate those sinners, but I'm going to go and I'm going to force you to love them because they will be found in me. No, no, no. He loved us then. That while we were still sinners, he sent his son. And his son willingly came and paid the price for our sins. And offers freely, freely salvation, forgiveness of our sins, adoption by his father, and the promise of eternal life. But he's got to be enough. The minute you try to add something to that, 
The minute you try to pile your own works upon Jesus, your own identity upon Jesus, the minute you think, I'm gonna do all that I can and then I'm gonna come to Jesus, he says, you've been severed from Christ. He's of no use to you. It's like putting old, new wine in old wine skins or trying to patch a robe. It will not work. You've got to look to Jesus Christ and you've got to say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you are enough. I bring nothing to this deal. You and you alone. And I lay down my life. Whatever I thought my old life was, whatever identity I thought I built for myself, I kill it all. And look, some of it's good stuff. But I lay it all down and I come to you and I offer nothing. I offer nothing to this deal. But in faith, I receive that you are enough. That's the call of salvation. That's the gospel message that Jesus preached. And I'm extending that today. There's no aisle for you to walk down. And I think that's probably a good thing. There's no preacher for you to come and confess to. And I think that's a good thing. But if right there in your house, that's the place where God has brought you. You've come to the end of yourself and you've realized, I can't do anything. If there was anything to be done to earn salvation, I'd mess that up too. And so I've come to the point where I'm at the end of myself and I recognize there is nothing I can do to add to, to earn, or to warrant my salvation. I am ready to trust in this Jesus Christ and him alone. Then do it. You don't need my permission. You don't need my blessing. I've got no holy water. You just got to say in your heart to God today, I choose to follow you today. In Jesus Christ, today. I turn from my sin and I turn to you today. Don't worry about how much faith is enough. It's not about your faith. It's about him. He's enough. It's not about what is true repentance. How much is repentance? How sorry do I have to be for my sin? No, it's not about that. It's about the object. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about being found in him. I'm calling you today to be found in him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ is enough. Father God, that he has overcome our sin, he has overcome hell, he has overcome the grave, he has overcome Satan. There is not an enemy that has or ever will exist that Jesus Christ is not greater than. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for all those times we've tried to add to him. That we've tried to earn our standing before you. That we thought that Jesus Christ plus our effort equaled something. Father, we know that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. So help us to trust in him that he is enough. Father God, we pray that the songs that we sing now in the glorious name of Jesus, that they would be pleasing to your ears. That you would be honored in our presence now. Not just our presence here in this room, but in our living rooms, in our cars, wherever we're watching this this morning. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.